Please listen carefully. Carefully. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Eppard. If you're like me and you think that most things in this world are much more complicated than either Democrats or Republicans make them out to be, and they don't fit neatly into one ideology or another, well, this is the podcast for you. We are aggressively nonpartisan here at the Utterly Moderate Podcast. If you like what we're doing here, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast and also subscribe to our newsletter, the Connors newsletter at connorsforum.org. That's C-O-N-N-O-R-S-F-O-R-U-M.org. The size of our podcast listener community and newsletter subscriber community has just exploded in recent months. Thank you so much for listening and so much for subscribing. We really appreciate it. We love the community that we are building here. So we've been wanting to do another mailbag episode for some time. And of course, when you guys email us either at connorsforum at gmail.com or through the contact page at connorsforum.org, we always get back to you. And if we can, we read those questions on the air. But we have been meaning to do another just full mailbag episode. And today is the day uh, since we sent out that message. Madison here, my podcast assistant, Madison Lockman. Uh, She's been collecting those questions and compiling them. And today is the day we are going to answer those questions. So, Madison, what's the first question up for our mailbag episode today? Okay, so the first question comes from Sharon and they ask, when will truth and honesty return to the news? And she put news in quotation marks. (laughs) Thank you for that question, Sharon. Uh, This is a main focus of my academic work. I write a lot about this topic, and um, we've developed some really good tools, I think, to assess whether a news outlet is accurate uh, and if it is unbiased. And what you find is when you use this rubric, you find that the problem's not really that we don't have trustworthy sources today. There are probably more sources today that are accurate and have limited bias than probably ever before in the U.S. And that's not an exaggeration. I mean, we have access to more credible, trustworthy, accurate, unbiased news today than probably at any point in our country's history. But I think what Sharon's picking up on is at the same time that really great, trustworthy news sources have exploded in number, really bad ones have also exploded in number and they've probably exploded at a greater rate. So, um, so the question today, I I don't think is really about, can you get really good, accurate, credible, trustworthy news with limited bias? Um, it's widely available. The question is, do you know which ones are offering that trustworthy news? There's this really great quote from a colleague of mine named Lee McIntyre, who I think has written one of the definitive books on misinformation and disinformation called post-truth. He says, quote, there is a scene in Indiana Jones and the last crusade where he is in the room with all of these goblets and chalices and doesn't know which one is the Holy grail. That's where we are right now. We have the truth right in front of us, but we don't know which one it is. End quote. So if you go over to our website at connorsforum.org, we use our really solid rubric to analyze 
which sources are doing a good job and which ones aren't. And of course, there's a whole list of sources that are doing a poor job. So um, on the left side of the political spectrum, places like MSNBC, CNN, the Huffington Post. Yeah, they're doing a pretty bad job um, in terms of bias, in terms of credibility. On the right, places like Fox News, Newsmax, OAN. Yeah, they're doing a really poor job. But again, there's so many sources that we've identified that are doing a good job, are doing a trustworthy, credible, accurate, unbiased job. So places like the Associated Press and Reuters and The Economist and the Christian Science Monitor, the BBC, the network news channels. There are so many. We've identified over 50 using a really solid, really rigorous rubric. So um, again, thank you for the question, Sharon. Um, I would agree with you. There has been just a huge growth in untrustworthy sources in recent years, but there's also been a huge growth in trustworthy sources over the past few decades. And the trick is just identifying which ones are which. And I think we've done a good job of that at connorsforum.org. And then we have another question from Mark. He asks, what do we know about George Washington's treatment of Native Americans? Thank you for the question, Mark. Actually, Mark, uh, when you sent this question in, it actually gave me a really good idea for a show, for an episode. So thank you so much. That's actually the reason why I brought Denver Brunsman on uh, back in October to do the episode, George Washington, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So uh, if you want a fuller answer to this question, go back and, and listen to that episode. And just remember, as you're listening, Mark, you're the reason why we did that episode. So <laughs> thank you so much. It was a good idea. Um, if I remember correctly, though, I believe um, many natives didn't have a great view of Washington, partly because of his treatment of them during military conflict. I think uh, one of the nicknames they gave him was Town Destroyer. Um, I, I'm vaguely remembering that from our conversation, but again, go back and listen to uh, Denver Brunsman and he'll give you a much more expansive answer about that question. But thanks for the idea for the episode. And next up is Abby. She asks, what is your opinion about the debate over critical race theory? Thank you for that question. Um, I wish we could talk about actual critical race theory and its, its strengths and weaknesses, but I don't think that's what most of the public is focusing on. And so I, th I think when people think of critical race theory today, they're really talking about this larger public discourse about our modern understandings of race and systemic inequalities. So that's how I will address your question. Um, in terms of the academic paradigm, it's pretty obscure. And I don't think most people are actually talking about that. But um, in terms of the public discourse about this that has come to be called critical race theory, I think it's completely dishonest. Um, you know, there's far too many people on the right side of the political spectrum who either classify everything that they don't agree with about race and about racial inequality as critical race theory, which is, of course, wrong and dishonest. And there are many, many, many politicians on the right who are just using critical race theory to score political points. They don't actually believe what they're saying. They're just scoring political points. And of course, that's just ludicrous, right? On the left side of the political spectrum, I think that um, people on the left are, are far too quick to dismiss people as being either a bigot or being um, you're arguing in bad faith if they disagree with them. And of course, there are people who are bigots and there are people who are coming to this debate in bad faith. And if that's the case, then they should be uh, you know, identified as such. But there are many people who aren't, who are making valid criticisms of what the left considers to be settled fact, to be considers to be dogma, right? 
and they should be taken seriously and they should be engaged with. They shouldn't be ignored or dismissed or silenced. Um, I, I also think that there are many issues, not just racial inequality, but many issues on the left today where people on the left are presenting their beliefs and their assumptions as if they are a settled fact when they are far from it, when the empirical reality is unsettled, right? And so um, I, I think the whole debate is really, really dishonest. I think there are dishonest elements on the left. I think there are dishonest elements on the right. With that being said, there are some really, really great people on both sides of the aisle who are having a good faith debate about this. And um, I would say just engage with their work and ignore the rest. And next up, we have Savannah. She asks, what is your personal opinion on abortion? Thank you for that question, Savannah. And I'm very sensitive to the fact that people have very strong feelings on this one way or another. So I appreciate that. And I'm just offering you my personal opinion. I'm not, you know, offering you something that I think, you know, should stand for all of us. But um, so my thinking about this goes uh, into two categories. I have my personal feelings, whether or not I'd be okay with it in my own life. And then I have my feelings about how the country should legislate it. So personally, I am very, very uncomfortable with abortion. And I've become more uncomfortable with it as I've had children and, and raised a family. I have five children. Um, so me personally, Lawrence Eppert, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with abortion, but I also think that abortion is something that is, um, there's no objective right or wrong to what the law should be. You know, I mean, some things we can objectively measure. I can objectively measure gravity. I can say, you know, gravity exists. That's not a hoax. It's real. And here are its objective properties. I don't think you can do that with a question of abortion, you know, whether it should be right or wrong or, or, or when it should be allowed and when it isn't. I think that's really about values, which are inherently subjective. So there is no right or wrong answer. So I think that on questions like that, on value-laden questions, we should leave it up to what does the American public want? And so most surveys that I've seen show that Americans want abortion legal in the first trimester. And then I believe at that point, only legal if someone's life is, if the mother's life is in danger. I think that's the way that they answer on surveys. So um, I would just say, again, personally uncomfortable with it. But uh, in terms of how the country should legislate it, I think we should go with what a majority of the American people want. Uh, so the next question comes from Jose. He asks, what is your main area of research? So my main area of research is economic and racial inequalities, sort of broadly. Um, that's what I write articles and books about. It's also what I um, teach in the classroom. I teach a social inequality course. I teach race in America some related courses like, you know, social movements. Um, and uh, specifically, I, I look at the spatial distribution of inequality in America. So what do different communities look like in terms of their poverty rates, their, um, you know, school quality, uh, social capital, you know, all the characteristics of communities and, you know, what are they, how different are they and how are they related to people's outcomes? So for children who are raised there, um, does it matter the kind of community they grew up in? Does it impact whether they go on to have a good income, graduate from college, um, you know, get married, incarceration, all that kind of stuff? And so that's really specifically what I focus a lot of my attention on in my research. But again, more broadly, just big issues of racial and economic inequality. Um, and like I said, I teach a lot of courses here. In fact, Madison, I think you've been in. Let's see. Did you take social inequality with me? I did. I took... 
intro, social inequality was over Zoom because of COVID, um, race in America, and now social movements. Man, you must really hate yourself to have taken four <laughs> courses with me. <laughs> Every year I have at least one. I know. You're like, man, my, my schedule is going too well. How can I make this worse? <laughs> okay, I'll take a... a <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think intro is where I was like, man, this is a really good student. Um, and then I probably bribed you somehow to become a, a sociology major. Um, but uh, so you took race in America and uh, and social equality, you said, was over Zoom. So it was a COVID. Yes. Yep. So yeah. So how was that for you guys? How'd you how'd you like the the COVID experience of of Zoom? Oh, fantastic! <laughs> Notice the sarcasm there. <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean, did I save money? Yes. Did I probably get my true educational experience? Not quite. But you know, I did learn. So that's the important part. But yeah, definitely didn't get as much out of it than I would have in the classroom. Yeah. And we're actually seeing in the research now that there's been some learning loss uh, for kids in K through 12, you know, in those COVID years, they did not learn as much as they would have otherwise. So just to give us some kind of feedback, because, you know, it's been a long time since I was in a college classroom and many of our listeners, you know, they may have kids, they may not have kids in school, but, you know, a lot of us are really detached from that experience. So as somebody who was in uh, in the thick of it, what was it that made it so difficult to simulate the experience of being in the classroom? Um, honestly, a lot of it was attention and like my attention mm-hmm. span definitely wavered a lot. Um, it was really easy. Not that I ever did this, but it was really easy to play on your phone during class because you could just turn your camera off and, you know, what are your professors going to do? Uh, they can't see you. They're not home with you. Or, you know, if you're at home, your dogs need to go out, so you have to step away from the computer, or your parents are being noisy somewhere. So it was just really hard to stay engaged for the full 50 minutes, hour and 15 minutes. Yeah, we have a, uh, a professor here, uh, Dr. David Monahan. I think you've you've taken classes with him, and you're one of his research assistants, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's done research. Uh, his main area of research is education. And um, I've talked to him quite a bit about this and my understanding. And again, this isn't my area of expertise, so I'm not uh, going to speak expertly on this. But my understanding is that for online education, um, you know, it's not great for kids who do really well in a, in a face-to-face classroom. They still lose something in online education. But the ones who really fall off a cliff are the ones at the bottom. Um, and I think for a lot of the reasons you're talking about engagement, right? I mean, I don't know about you, Madison, but, but for me, it's like, you know, you get up in the morning, you take a shower, um, you just feel different when you, when you get ready, you get clothes on to go to the world rather than wearing your, you know, fleece lined slippers or whatever. And, uh, you go to the classroom, you know, you're in an academic setting, there's certain expectations and norms. And it's very different than like, if you're laying in bed on your laptop or your phone, watching a class, like you're just not as, as keyed in, right? Yeah, you feel like you're watching a movie and you can just kind of keep it in the background. Just sort of passively rather than actively uh, consume the information, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, anyway, we'll tie this back. (laughs) (laughs) So, so yeah, and you took Race in America with me and uh, and Social Inequality. You're taking movements. So, in all the courses that you've had with me, so you know my main area of research, economic racial inequalities, 
Um, what are the, the topics that have most interested you in those courses? Um, might be I prisoner like- of the moment right now because we're, we're in the <laughs> middle of social movements. It might be all the stuff that's in your brain. But what do you think? No, honestly, I like when we learn about like neighborhoods and how that really affects your upbringing. And I especially like when we look on like, uh, what was that one website that it tells you? Opportunity, the Opportunity Atlas. Atlas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Opportunityatlas.org. Uh, go check it out. And there's also a couple articles in the newsletter about that. But uh, so you like the neighborhood stuff. Why does that appeal yeah. to you? I just think that's really interesting. Like mm-hmm. I can see it because I live out in this middle of nowhere, the forest. Um, and a <laughs> 20 minute drive changes your opportunity. If you head like into the middle of York City, that changes mm-hmm. your um, outcome drastically. So I just think do you that's live in really a treehouse in the middle of the woods? Where where is this? Um, I did have a treehouse growing up, but I, I do have a standard house. It's just in the forest. You made it sound like you know I built a nest of sticks and uh, you know I'm in the trees. No, no, it's a neighborhood, but it's it's all old people. So you know gotcha. I didn't have any kids gotcha. to play with growing up. Sadness. But you know, you didn't have any kids, so was it just? Did you rely on your sister then for? Yeah, for that? we had one other family, but um, yeah, we didn't really play with them. <laughs> so were you super duper excited when you got to school and actually got to see other kids? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had like I went to preschool and stuff, so right. You know, yeah. I wasn't completely cut off from the world, but you know, <laughs> it's definitely yeah. I'm lucky I had my sister. <laughs> Well, the other question I was going to ask you was, uh, besides like the topics that most interested you, um, what are some of the sort of hands-on activities? And you've already said that you enjoy the Opportunity Atlas. So, um, And we just, I showed you guys in class the other day, and I wrote about this in the newsletter, that uh, Opportunity Insights, which is the center at Harvard who uh, produced the Opportunity Atlas, actually came up with a social capital atlas based upon their new research. So um, some really cool stuff if you come to SHIP, which is a great place. <laughs> we were always up to date with our research and um, with the data. And whenever this stuff breaks, we get it right into the classroom and have our students dig in and, and do projects with it. So I'm um, glad to hear that that made an impact on you. Yeah. Outside of SOCH, what are some of the classes that you've enjoyed the most and why? Um. I would say actually one I'm taking right now, elections and campaigns with uh, Dr. Dagnus. Dr. Dagnus, former co-host of yes. Utterly Moderate. Yeah, she's a very popular uh, professor here. We are doing our simulation. So that should be fun for the next three weeks. We're going all in. I am the vice presidential candidate for the Democratic Party. Just a little plug there. <laughs> <laughs> vote madison <laughs> yes um but so yeah that should be a lot of fun awesome all right well let's get back to the mailbag here madison so what else do we got on tap okay and the next question comes from edgar he asks how's your pessimistic view of the future of american democracy changed at all after the midterms Thank you for the question. Uh, I wish I could say yes, but no, my, my pessimistic view has not improved. Uh, the methods that Trump used to try to overturn the 2020 election, they failed for him, but it's not clear to me that they won't be successful for somebody else. Um, those weaknesses are still there, in my opinion, so that's extremely worrisome. This independent state legislature theory that the Supreme Court is considering is extremely anti-democratic. 
Add to that the ongoing problems of just extreme partisanship in America, the dysfunction of our Congress, um, the ongoing negative impact of misinformation and disinformation and, you know, partisan media, all those things. Um, I think we're in a really bad spot. I think we're going to be experiencing some troubles for uh, probably a few decades. Um, I I wish that I were wrong. I, I wish that we could make the needed reforms to take care of all this stuff. But no, I, I think we're still in a really bad spot. Sorry to say. And the next question comes from Andrew. He asks, you talk a lot about people's media diets. What is your personal media diet? Ooh, good question. You put me on the spot. <laughs> um, um, the ones that I frequent the most, I'd say places like the Associated Press and Reuters, um, I really like Axios. I have the app on my phone. I have the Politico app on my phone. Um, you know, the standards, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post. Um, you know, those are the ones that I frequent the most. I, I read a lot of news, so I read a lot of different sources. But um, I really like the AP, the Associated Press and Reuters. Um, love the apps, Axios and Politico. Um, and like I said, those legacy papers, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post. Um, it's a pretty good diet. And the next question comes from Peggy. She asks, do you consider yourself a liberal or a conservative? It is hard to tell from listening to the podcast. Uh, You put me on the spot too, Peggy. (laughs) Um, I honestly, I know it sounds cliche. I don't consider myself a Republican or a Democrat. I don't consider myself conservative or liberal. I'm a pragmatist. I just, you know, when problems arise in our society, what does the preponderance of the evidence say is causing the problem? What's the best policy to address it? If the policy is a Republican idea, great. If it's from the Democrats, great. I don't care. I don't keep score. I just want the best society to live in possible. I did take one of those quizzes one time, one of those political quizzes that told you like which percentage of each party's platform you agreed with. And I swear to you, this is true. It said something like that I agreed with like 52% of the Republican platform and 49% of the Democrats platform. So uh, I really am middle of the road, but I don't consider myself um, as belonging to either one of those parties. The next question comes from Alyssa. She asked, did the poverty predictions you wrote about in the newsletter turn out right? Great question, Alyssa, and uh, doubly good because you uh, referenced the newsletter, which we like. Uh, so, yeah, so uh, the Urban Institute in the middle of uh, 2021, they released a report with estimates about what the poverty rate was going to be in the U.S., a supplemental poverty measure. And uh, their predictions were that uh, with the stimulus checks and with the child tax credits, that poverty was going to hit an all-time low of 7.7%. And Urban Institute's a pretty reliable source. And the researchers who produced that report, I consider to be uh, good researchers. And so I figured they would be pretty close, but uh, I didn't realize just how close they were going to be. And, uh, you know, we don't actually know the poverty rate until long after the year ends. So the U.S. Census doesn't actually uh, release those statistics until the September of the following year. And so just this past September, they did release their numbers. And shockingly, I knew they'd be close. The Urban Institute's good at what they do. But they predicted 7.7% and the number was 7.8%. So they they did just an outstanding job. So yeah, so um, poverty hit an all time low in 2021. We've never recorded a lower rate than that. 
Um, same with child poverty and all the different ways you can you can slice that data. Uh, and that's directly because of the stimulus checks and the the um, child tax credits, the COVID measures that the government took to try to protect families. They weren't without, as I wrote in the newsletter, they weren't without um, consequences. So there have been many critics who have said they shouldn't have gone to middle and upper income families and that that, that probably contributed to inflation. And I, I think that's probably true. So could have been designed better. Um, but you know, just in terms of their impact, yes, they did actually help us to hit an all-time low, which is, uh, you know, I'm always in my social classes, you know, Madison, we're always talking about a lot of negative things, right? What are the things to fix in society? So it was nice to be able to say, hey, this this thing worked. So that was good. Now, do you think we should have those permanently? Ah, that's a great question. Um, you know, there are a variety of ways that we can address poverty. Um, and so I don't think, you know, anytime you have something that works, that doesn't necessarily mean it's something that you should institute permanently because you have to think about, is this the most efficient measure? Is it the best measure? Are there other consequences that are negative that we aren't comfortable with, like inflation? So um, I wouldn't personally be opposed to something like a child tax credit, uh, like the COVID one that, that was more permanent. Um, I do think probably it should be more means tested. It shouldn't just go to everybody. Programs that are universal tend to be more popular and so I think Americans would like that more, but I do actually, after talking to some economists, I do worry that, um, that does have an inflationary effect. So, um, I wouldn't be opposed to it happening for low income folks. Um, it seemed to have a pretty substantial impact on reducing poverty. Got us really close to like, you know, some Western European and Scandinavian numbers, which is just not usual for the U S. Um, but again, I think we do have to be careful about the inflationary effects. So. Next up, we have a question from Wesley. Why did you choose to become a college professor? Oh, great question, Wesley. Well, I originally wanted to teach history at the K through 12 level. And then when I went to college to take history courses, I actually fell in love with the social sciences as well. I became enamored with their data and research. And I decided that I still wanted to teach, but that I wanted to also do social scientific research. So I just consider this to be the absolute best job for my personality. I get to spend all day long just immersed in data and research. I get to write about important topics. Then I take breaks and go to the classroom and talk to students about all this information. I get to work individually with students on related projects. It's just a really cool job that if this is the kind of thing you like to do, you're just constantly reading and analyzing and writing and teaching and discussing. I mean, I couldn't love it anymore. And this place where I'm at, Shippensburg University, is really amazing. It's a great place to work and it's a wonderful, wonderful place for students to learn. It's just a wonderful and vibrant community. So uh, yeah, I mean, this is about as good as it gets for somebody like me. And next up, we have a question from Hunter. He asks, can you tell us a little bit about why you started the podcast? Ah, good question. Uh, a couple of reasons. One is I've always brought speakers to campus to talk to our students and we always tape those conversations and we put them online. And I just got to thinking at one point that so many of these conversations that we have with these big time intellectuals and big time thinkers are conversations that more people outside of Shippensburg University should be exposed to. And so the idea was, well, I mean, it's it's kind of like a podcast format anyway. A lot of the stuff we do like a Q&A and we have a moderator. And so it's kind of like a podcast format. Why not just do it additionally as a podcast, still bring speakers to campus, right? But also have this podcast where, you know, you're speaking to the larger community. In addition to that, though, 
um, you know, I, I think that our country is, is plagued by misinformation and disinformation. And I see it on the left and the right, the left and the right saying things that are really, you know, not true, partially true, distorted. And I just wanted to be one more person having honest, nonpartisan conversations. And so I hope that, um, people appreciate that. So that's the reason for the podcast. All right. Well, Madison, I know you got more questions there, but, uh, I wanted to kind of keep this episode short and snappy and um, maybe we'll save those questions for another mailbag episode. You can always email us at connorsforum at gmail.com or you can go to connorsforum.org and there's a contact page there. Uh, Madison, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. (laughs) And thank you to all of you who submitted questions. Thank you to all of you who listen to this podcast, who subscribe to our newsletter This is a wonderful, wonderful community of reasonable Americans. I am just so happy to be a part of this. So thank you again, and we'll see you next time. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling about the clouds when we're together just sing a song and bring the sunny weather happy trails to you till we meet Take a liking to you.